We're going to open in prayer before we read the word. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to worship you and ask you to bless this time as we're looking at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke 6, starting at verse 12. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain and prayed and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples and them... And of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also was the traitor. And he came down with them and stood in the plain and the company of his disciples, and a great multitude came out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And when they were, and they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes to his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you that hunger, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you that weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice you in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner did they your fathers did your fathers unto the prophets. But woe to you when you are rich and have received your consolation. Woe to you that are full, for you have shall hunger. Woe to you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men shall speak well of you, so they, for so they did to the false prophets. So we're going to look at a couple of things. This long section of scripture. I see three different things we're going to talk about over this, over this because not any one of them was long enough to make it. But we want to start with Jesus spent the night in prayer, the whole night. Now, this is kind of interesting because back a while ago, I believe it was Spurgeon who said, there's going to come a time when people will not be able to suffer three hours in prayer or service. Well, we are at that point. We, we have one-hour services now. And how many of you can get, uh, get through an hour of prayer without uh, starting to wonder what time it is? Uh, now, and I'm, I feel my same in there. Usually a lot of times my prayer time is really hard. It's, you know, uh, we have even a, a hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer. And you know, it is wonderful. When you can concentrate on God for a long period of time and just pray, it's wonderful. But it is getting harder and harder, especially in our world with all the noise and commotion. And it says, Jesus spent the night in prayer. So out of curiosity, I went through to try to find out how many times did Jesus spend a night in prayer and did some research, looked it up a little bit, and I found that there were about 25 events that Jesus spent the night in prayer recorded. These ones included things like his baptism, the choosing of the twelve, the, before the Mount of Transfiguration. Every time there was going to be a big event in Jesus' life, or at least big by human standards, he spent the night in prayer. And this is something really want to encourage us, because if you do a research in 
revivals around the world and in the country, they start with prayer. In Chronicles, we're told, if my people who are called by name shall humble themselves and pray, God answers. God moves when we spend time in prayer. And I'm not talking about those little quick five-minute prayers we give God saying, God, this person needs something, bless them. Now, God will hear those and he'll answer them. But if we really want to see God do something big, we need to really say we're going to spend time in prayer. And this is why we probably need to do it more often, but it's hard enough to get people out once a month for our prayers. But once a month, you know, we pray for the lost in this church because we want to see revival. Or at least I do. I hope you all do. This town is changing over time. It is becoming a better town to be in because we are praying. We are lifting up God. We are seeing him do work. And I want to see a great revival. I'd love to see another great revival in our country. This country's already had three revivals that have changed things and turned things upside down. I'd like to see another revival. And you know what? I'd love history to say it started here in chloride. It would be wonderful, wouldn't it? That it started here in chloride because we as a church bowed our, our faces to the ground and said, God, we want to see a revival. Most revivals are traced back to just a handful of people who prayed. There's a revival that was about 50 to 100 years ago in Scotland that started with two old ladies you know, in their 80s praying for revival. And a revival swept across northern Scotland because of their prayers. What can God do through prayer? We need to find out. But we need to really believe that God still answers prayer. And in this day and age, there's a lot of people that do not believe that God answers prayer. God still heals. He still does revivals. He still does great works if we just believe him and come into prayer. Jesus did. I've got the list of anybody wants it. I didn't print it out. I didn't figure it would go through all 23 points <laughs> where Jesus prayed. But every time that Jesus started something that was going to be big as far as the disciples were concerned, he spent the night in prayer between him and the Father. And this is very beautiful for us. I am going to spend and have been spending for our creation event a lot of time in prayer. I want to see this room filled. I'm already making plans to check the speakers and everything on next door and make sure that he picks up the radio next door in case we need overflow. You know how great that would be to need an overflow? You know, that this room is filled and we need to fill that room over there and then have people in their cars or something listening to it on their, in their cars. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to see? I'm going to challenge you all. Pray. Pray for this event. Pray. Plan to come yourself. Invite people. Lift it up in prayer because this is a big deal. To find out why God's word is more trustworthy than the so-called science that they're taught in school is important. Yeah. When I was in school, it was hard. We did not have all the resources we have today to be able to show that, that creationism is more scientific than evolution. And I still upset lots of teachers because I would have things from scientific journals showing that they were teaching false stuff. They did not like me. Yeah. And I wasn't very nice back then. And you, you, all, you all know the nice, nice Pastor Ralph. You, know, you don't know the, the jerk that I was back in those days. <laughs> you know, and I wasn't very nice to these teachers. 
You know, I hammered them and I didn't let go. I wasn't very respectful of my instructors, my teachers. I, I broke a lot of the Bible's rules to prove that the Bible was right. You know, so I wasn't very nice, but there's nice ways to do it and I've learned them over the years. But those teachers didn't have that, that type of advantage. But Jesus prayed. He went before the Father and said, there's going to be something big. This particular event that we're looking at is he picked the 12 disciples. You know, most of us, when we think about this, all we think about when we say disciples, we think about the 12 disciples. Many of us can't name all the 12 disciples. You know, you know, we're, well, we'd know Simon or Peter. We'd name John you know, and probably be able to pick out a handful of the other ones. Matthew, who wrote, who wrote a book. You know, do you realize out of the four Gospels, only two of the disciples wrote Gospels? <laughs> Luke and Mark aren't disciples <laughs> that were picked by Jesus. But you know, there were also several hundred people that went with Jesus just about everywhere he went. When, Jesus, when you invited Jesus to your home for a visit, you got Jesus, the 12 disciples that were the apostles, and who knows how many others. <laughs> you know, several women that went around with them everywhere they went. And you know, Paul said that 500 people had seen Jesus, is what he told the Corinthians. He said 500 people had seen Jesus. So we know that at minimum, there's about 500 people everywhere Jesus goes that were his disciples, that were his church. Out of that, he'd pick 12 that he personally poured into because if you, I don't know if you realize it, but I cannot pour into all 20, 30 people in our church, you know, personally. You know, I stand up here, I preach, I teach, but there's certain people that I get to go and say, you know, really pour into and then they can pour into others. So this is what we're supposed to do. We teach our family, we teach our children, we pour our lives and our heart into them, and then we find other people as we go along to disciple, deeply disciple. Uh, and so this is what Jesus did. Out of the five or 600,000 people, however many it was, he picked 12 that says, you are the special ones. You hear everything that I'm going to speak. We're going to pull you aside and special teach you at times and raise you up. And so these are the ones he got, that he brought. Uh, out of the 12, we know the occupations of six of them. There were four fishermen, one tax collector, and one zealot. Now, I don't know if you all know what a zealot was, but a zealot was a nationalist. He was all for getting rid of Rome out of, out of, out of Israel. He was on the side. He was ready to go to war. And he was matched up with Matthew, sometimes called Levi, the tax collector, who was considered the sellout, the traitor. Can you imagine what it was like when those two got together? How many of us in the church have ever talked to somebody who's not the same political persuasion as we are? You know, and all of a sudden you get into some battles. And hopefully you don't decide I'm going to leave church because everybody doesn't agree with me completely because you know what, we're not going to agree with each other. Everything about the Bible, much less everything else about our life. So we need to learn to be able to agree on what's important and peacefully disagree about things that aren't that important. All right? And this is very important. I love to discuss things that when people disagree with me as long as it is a discussion. 
But as soon as they plant a flag and say, you have to believe this or else, and they're ready to go to war, I pull away from it because it's mo there's very few things that are worth arguing over. And I've told you, I have just a handful of them. Jesus is the Son of God, the only Son of God, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and is the only way to heaven. I will fight over that one. Because that's the only way to heaven, and I will fight with somebody over that. You know, outside I'll just have a good discussion with them. But in the church, I will fight over that, because we cannot have a church without that being true. I will argue about the Bible being the word of God and every word of it being something that we are to live by because without this book being true, we might as well throw it away and not live, live Christianity because if I have to, if there's anything in this book that's not true, I can't trust it. And if there's anything in this book that's not true, how do I determine what's true and what's not true? It's got to all be true or I become God deciding what's true and what's not true in it. And you would become God trying to decide what's true and not true. So it all has to be true. Beyond that, there are some very important things about the Bible that I teach and I will, will defend. But if you want to do, not believe it, then be my guest. Just as I tell everybody, be willing to tell me why you don't. You know, I don't want a bunch of robots repeating everything that I say. That's called a cult. When you follow your leader, no matter what that leader says, that's being a cult. I want people like Paul still praised the Bereans said, you search the scriptures to prove what I say. Know what you believe, why you believe it. We may not agree. That's fine. I don't agree with a lot of the scholars I read. You know, and one of us is right and one of us is wrong. When we all get to heaven, they'll all find out I was right. And I, know, and I know that that's not a true statement. I'm going to find out that I'm wrong in plenty of places, I'm sure. But I do know why I believe what I believe, and I can defend what I believe. And it's very important that you can know, study to show yourself a workman that is approved, that does not be, need to be ashamed. Know why you believe what you believe, and how come... And again, there's certain things that are very important. Jesus died for our sins, and he was perfect, and he was the, son of, the only, one and only begotten Son of God. That's very important. He was not a God. He was not like God. He did not become a God because he was so good. He was the one and only begotten Son of God who has been with God since the beginning of time. He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That's what the Scriptures tell us. And this is all very important for us to understand. You know, the Holy Spirit is part of God and separate from God. And we don't understand the Trinity. And we're not going to teach the Trinity today. But you know, uh, I've told everybody, you know, the Bible teaches the Trinity. I can teach you all the verses on the Trinity. I can prove to the Bible teaches it. And we still will not understand it completely because it's beyond our comprehension. And you know what? People will go, well, see, that proves the Bible's wrong because there's things we don't understand. And I say it proves that it's right because there are things that we don't understand. And if we're worshiping a God that we could fully understand, then we don't have a big enough God. I hope they got that statement. If you can understand everything there is to know about God, he is not big enough to be worshiped by us. We have created ourselves as being God because we say we know everything more than the infinite. I am so happy when I come across, and I've only been studying for 50 years, 
But there are so many things that I don't fully understand in the Bible, and it's new every time I read, which just proves to me that it's God's Word. And I understand things a little better than I used to 50 years ago, but there's still things in there that I don't understand. And it is good that we don't. Because if I can understand everything, I don't have a big enough God. And so we have these 12 men. Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, the four fishermen are listed first. <laughs> I don't know why, but they were listed first. Um, then we end up having uh, uh, Philip and Bartholomew, and those are brothers. Uh, Matthew and Thomas. You know, poor Thomas. Everybody knows Thomas. Thomas is called the doubter. I feel sorry for Thomas. I am sure that Thomas was the analytical one amongst them. You know, I, I look at what Thomas said, and I would have figured if I was the disciple, I would have been Thomas. You know, when I wasn't in the room, and they're all telling me they saw Jesus, and I said, well, I saw him on the cross. I saw him in the, I saw him in the grave. Uh, what were you guys smoking last night at, your, at the Bible study instead of studying the Bible? I would have been, I would have been Thomas. <laughs> You know, I saw him die. You know, what, what, what's going on? Why, you know, why, why are you telling me he was in the room? Uh, so I feel sorry for Thomas. He gets a bad rap. <laughs> uh, and you know what? If you don't know it, Thomas actually took the gospel to India. And the church in India recognizes him as the founding father of the Christian church in India. Uh, he was run through with four lances from all directions. Uh, so he was not somebody who doubted enough not to follow. Um, so we have Thomas, we have uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, and another Simon called the, called the Zealot, and then two Judases. How would you like to have been uh, Judas, the brother of James, when Judas Iscariot was the one that uh, uh, betrayed Jesus? He's got the wrong name at that point in time. <laughs> all right. So Jesus went before all these people, and the crowd came from all over. Can you imagine? Jesus has a group of people who follow him everywhere. But also, everywhere Jesus goes, a crowd gathers. And most of them aren't there to hear him speak. They're there to see the miracles. And that is sad. Even in today's world, if we wanted to draw a huge crowd to this church, there's two things I can do to draw, to draw a crowd to this church. We can announce that we're going to have a healing service. And we'll get a crowd of people here to see people get healed. And God would do it. God heals people, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't do it just to cause... And the other one is, and I'm not sure if everybody knows, all I have to do is announce that we're going to be teaching the book of Revelation and end times. And we'll get a crowd. When I was doing the book of Revelation, I was, before I got my second job, we were doing it on Thursday afternoon, and we had 12 people every, every day in that Bible study, studying the book of Revelation. Now, two things get people out. God doing miracles and talking about the end times. So, all this, everywhere Jesus went, a crowd came because they wanted to see some miracle. And we see here that Jesus spoke a message, and if you recognize as I read that message, it sounds very much like the Sermon on the Mount. Except that it said it was on a level place. Now we do not know, and there's debate on this, there's two schools of thought on this, that this was up on the Mount of, where the Sermon of the Mount of Matthew was taught. It's much longer in Matthew. And it was a level place on the mountain that Jesus taught. And that is a possibility. 
It is also possible that Jesus taught the same message so many times because if you read the Bible through, you find out one thing about God. God knows us very well. He knows that we are thick-headed and can't remember things from day, from day to day, so he has to repeat himself. It is funny when you read the Bible and look at how often God says the same thing over and over and over again. So it is possible that this message that Jesus gave was spoke several times over, over a period of time. And he says, I just want you to keep remembering these things. These are very important. Remember them. And so everywhere he went, he spoke the same thing several times. And I'm not, gonna, I'm not sure which one I believe. I don't care. Uh, I do believe the message was important enough that Jesus probably preached the same thing several times. And we're just going to take a quick look at this message because this is... This whole message that he gives, and in, and in the Sermon on the Mount, is in Hebrew poetry format. All right, uh, Hebrew poetry is not like our poetry that we have in English, where we rhyme all, of the, all the ends. English poetry has parallelism. And their parallelism will either be two sentences in a row that say the same thing differently. All right. Uh, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, Psalm 48. Uh, Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Uh, the testimony of the Lord is, what is wise, making, uh, making sure the simple. Uh, so comparisons where they say the same thing in two different ways. In this particular poetry that he's using, he's saying this is one thing, and then he's given us the opposite, which is their other side. They either use parallelism or they use opposites. So we see that this is very poetic as he's saying this. So he starts out and says, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Poor, those who have, are deficient in something. Now, I don't know how you think about that, but what is our attitude? If I don't have something, what do I want? I want what I don't have. You want what you don't have. It is human nature to want what we don't have. It's our human nature that when we have a friend that gets something that we don't have in it or, or something better than what we have, we want what they have, even though they're our friend. You know, they just bought a brand new car with all the bells and whistles. There's nothing wrong with my car. It gets from point A to point B with no problem. But I don't have the backup camera or the, or the car that barks itself or the, or the CD player or the MP3 player or the satellite player, whatever it might be that would turn you on about that car, I don't have. And all of a sudden I go, wow, I really, God, I really need a new car. And God said, there's nothing wrong with the car that you have. We need to be looking at, not looking at those things. Uh, because, you know, ultimately our reward is heaven. Our ultimate reward is in heaven. And I can't even imagine. I have a terrible imagination. You know, but you know, whatever we think about heaven is going to be so minor compared to what heaven is. If you have a great imagination and your imagination is better than mine, and it probably is, <laughs> you know, whatever you imagine, multiply it by you know, 10 to the 128th power. <laughs> and you're, probably, you're still not even close to what heaven's going to be like. This is where our reward is. He says, if you're poor on earth, don't worry about it. You have a reward. He says, blessed are you that hunger, for you shall be filled. Now this hunger 
is that I want. I'm, you know, not that I'm starving to death, but I'm never full completely. And I believe that it's not just physical hunger that he's talking about. What is the greatest thing that happened to me when I became a Christian is I got hungry for God's word. I got hungry for God. I wanted more and more of God and sought after getting more and more of God. Does that represent who you are? When you know Jesus, are you seeking for more of God? You know, I sometimes wonder, and I've, got to, I've told you, although I do have one very strange picture of, of, us, of people in heaven. Because there's a spiritual body in heaven. How much did they feed themselves on earth as they show up in heaven? I have this very interesting picture of people who don't read God's word showing up with emaciated bodies in heaven. And pictures of other people who have really studied God's word and been hungry for God's word and have nice, fat, spiritual bodies. You know, because they fed themselves. But you know, I do understand. Do we hunger after God? Not just physical food. You know, how long can you go without reading God's word before you just have starving for his word? And I think this is important for us. Our bodies scream to us, but you know, our souls will scream to us to feed, feed me. At least they do, that mine does. Mine is always screaming, feed me. Uh, you know, and I already, you know, my physical body I like to eat too, but I try to feed the spiritual body as well and always have. It's one of the great things God gave me. He says, hunger. Hunger for him. And he says, if you hunger for him, you will be feel, filled. And it says, blessed are you that weep now, for you shall laugh. You know, weeping for people is very important. In our world, you know, especially as men, you're told, don't, don't weep, don't cry, don't show emotion. You know, what a sad thing to be doing. You know, when I watch a, a television show, I can, I can break out into tears pretty easy on a stupid television show or a movie. You know, I do have these emotions that hit. And they're important. Do we have this idea? You know, it tells us that God mourns for us, that he sorrows for us. We have emotions because God created us in his image, not, not because God looks like us with two legs and two arms and a head and two ears and a nose and a mouth and two eyes. You know, that's not what it's talking about, but we are created in his image. We have emotions. We have thoughts. You know, we, we had everybody laughing earlier today, you know, and I love the fact that we can laugh in church. Have any of you ever been to a church where if you laughed or even smiled, you'd probably be, you thought you might get kicked out of the church? I've, I've seen them. I don't stay there very long. <laughs> you know, but, you know, their attitude is God is so holy, so righteous that God would never laugh. I think God has quite a sense of humor. He created us to begin with. <laughs> you know, uh, he created something like the platypus. I don't know how much you know about a platypus, but a platypus lays eggs. It's a mammal. It has poison sacs in it. It has everything that mammals aren't supposed to have, and yet it's a mammal, and God created that as well. Probably just to irritate the scientists that were going to come along. You know, how many other animals, if you really get into animals and everything, that God created some animals that are just funny animals. And then he created us. You know, and we, we are quite hilarious in and of ourselves. 
You know, and God has a sense of humor. And I can picture that God's probably laughing sometimes. He's crying sometimes, too, about the things we do. But I think there's some things that we do, he just laughs. Probably shakes his head and says, I've told you not to do that. Why are you doing that? You know, even, you know, not necessarily sin, but just some of the silly things that we do that aren't sin, but, you know, God's probably looking and going, oh, why would you do something like that? The same thing we probably did with our teenagers as they were growing up. Why would you do something that crazy and that silly? It's, you know, it's not wrong, but it was really not smart to do. And God says, those of us that will mourn will laugh. I can picture heaven. Heaven's going to be a wonderful place to be as far as joy. No more sadness, no more tears, but there will be joy. I think there's going to be laughter all over heaven. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they separate you from their company and reproach you and cast you out, cast your name as evil for, for the Son of God's sake. What happens to us when we feel like we're being persecuted and people are making fun of us? Is our first thought, oh, thank you, Jesus. Not usually our first thought. Should it be our first thought's another story because Jesus said, yes, you should. If, and note that it said, for Jesus' name's sake. Not just because you're being a jerk. All right. I, I know a man way back in my past. He was a pretty big jerk and he used to always say he was being persecuted because, for Jesus. Now, I pretty much think he was being persecuted because he was a jerk. Okay, and there are places where people are made fun of and everything because that's, they're just being that way. But when we are being persecuted for Jesus, I dare to say his name in a crowd of people that don't believe in his name. I say that God has standards in this world when the people around me do not believe that God has a standard. You know, when, when you deal with somebody and that's in committing fornication, adultery, or homosexuality, or any of those sins, and you say, that is sin in God's standards. And they go, well, you're judging me. No, God is saying, I'm just saying what God says it is. You know, and you talk to them, and you say, God has standards, and they start isolating you. Or, in some countries, killing you. We are coming closer and closer in our country of being separated and potentially thrown into jail for Christian beliefs. And that's been on my heart a lot lately. I've been talking about it a lot over the last six months. We need to be prepared to stand for God no matter what. Because persecution is coming to America. We look at the laws that are being passed, and they're the same laws that are being passed other places around the world, and people are going to jail and prison for violating those laws and they keep telling us, well, you're not, you Christians aren't going to go to jail. Well, they did in Canada. They did in England. They did in, in Germany. They did in, in France. You know what? We will here in America. In spite of all that they're telling us. We need to be prepared. Our politicians have changed the First Amendment that says the freedom of religion. If you listen very closely to what they're telling us now, they will tell us that we have the freedom to worship. There's a big difference between the freedom to worship and the freedom of religion. Worship says we can do anything we want in this building because this is the church and you came here of your own free will and we can do what we want in here. You can do what you want in your home. But do not take it to the workplace. Do not take it out on the streets. That is what freedom of religion says, that I can be a Christian anywhere I go 
and I will be anyway, as opposed to freedom of worship. Do not let them take your right away from you. Be careful. Listen to the politicians that you're voting for. And I'm not going to tell you whether to vote Republican or Democrat, but listen to, the, to, the, to them and what terms are they listening to. Listen closely to the terms that they speak. Are they speaking the right terms that give us freedom, or are they speaking the terms that take freedom away? Because if they're speaking the terms that take freedom away, then they will vote to take away the freedoms. And we will be persecuted. You know, we look at what happens in all the dictatorships, Russia, China, Cuba, Romania. We look at what happened during Hitler's time. It all started and we saw little signs. Learn history. If you, if you started learning history, you'd be scared of what's going on in America because we are walking down the path of dictatorship. How soon? I don't know. Hitler, it only took him eight years to get from going to be popularly elected leader to dictator. We are that close and we need to be paying attention. But when we do get it, rejoice. <laughs> rejoice. You know, even when there's all this persecution come along, there's a very important verse that God did not take out of the Bible when everything goes wrong, and that's Romans 8.28. For all things work together for good for those who are called of God, love God and are called according to his purpose. When things seem to be going wrong for you, always remember that God has a plan. Always. Yeah. And I quote that verse to myself a lot. I learned the hard way not to quote it to other people unless they believe it. Okay, because if they don't believe it before they're in a problem, they are not going to believe it during the problem. But this is why I'm telling all of us now, before there's lots of problems, get it into your head, believe it. Because sometimes this is the only comfort that you will have, that God has a plan. And you grab hold of his promise and say, God, I don't understand it. There's many times when my prayer is, God, I don't understand how this can be for anybody's good, but you have promised. And always remember, my favorite thing of saying about that verse is it does not have one extra word that we like to add into it. All right? God did not say that all things work together for my good. He says all things work together for good. Not necessarily my good. My suffering might be for somebody else to see God work. Fox's Book of Martyr records all kinds of people who died for, the, for, the, for God who later on other people came to God because of their death. So we don't know what good is going to come. We just need to be ready to hope, place our hope in that. And then he says, rejoice for in the day, for in that day, okay, all of the, everybody cursing you and blowing, uh, getting mad, for in that day, leap for joy. All right? So when you're being criticized and cursed for Jesus, be joyful. Now, I know that that's hard for us in the human mind, but if we're following God, it should be something that we can do. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner your fathers treated the prophets. You know, sometimes we read the Old Testament and we think, oh boy, these prophets had it so easy. All they did, they had, they had access to the king, they gave him these messages. And we kind of forget that usually after they gave him the message, they were thrown in the dungeon. They were thrown in cisterns. Several of them had their heads chopped off. They were scourged. 
Isaiah, one of the great prophets, was put into a log and sawn into two. Now, the prophets did not have an easy time. And imagine, you're coming there and you're thinking, everything, they're thinking everything's good, God is God, you know, we're not following God, but everything's going great, kind of like our country. And the prophet's coming along and says, God's going to judge you. You think that the kings thought that that was a very good message? Here's a traitor, everything's going good. They treated them as traitors and, and they threw them in prison more often than not for talking about what God said. How does the world look at us as Christians when we cross their path with God's word? You guys are just a bunch of traitors. You're a bunch of crazy people. You guys are still living in the Stone Age. You haven't evolved with the rest of the world. You have not, you know, all these others have grown and it's even worse when we have so many liberal churches that are throwing away the Bible and agreeing with the world. And they say, well, what's wrong with you Christians? You know, these other churches don't have a problem with it. They're supposed to be believing in the same book. They believe the same book in Jesus you do. No, they don't, but that's okay. Know that God has a plan and be ready to be joyful because and Jesus then goes into a set of woes. And on the opposite side, he says, Woe to you that are rich, because you already have your reward. Woe to you that have, are full, because you will lack. Now, I look at this as being on both sides. The first part is the temporal. What is going on in this world? The rest of it will be for eternity. If we suffer in this world... We have reward in heaven and we will be blessed in heaven. Those that are rich in this world and think they have everything all together and they're full, when they get into hell, they'll have an eternity of suffering. An eternity. Don't, don't lose track of this. We are talking that once we're born, we have an eternal destiny. We either through Jesus Christ have a destiny of pleasure and joy or without Christ, we have a destiny of pain and suffering for eternity. And a lot of people, well, God's a God of love. How could he send anybody to hell? You know, God doesn't send anybody to hell. He sends you to where you choose. In this lifetime, we will make a choice of our destiny. We can live for God in this lifetime and suffer in this lifetime and have reward in heaven or we can try to think that we're doing good in this lifetime and if you especially for those who get saved late in life you know that you really never enjoyed life before you were saved anyway and have punishment for eternity the story of Lazarus and the rich man not the Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead but the rich man ended up in hell looking up to Lazarus he still thought he was better than Lazarus who was sitting in heaven and says, I'm thirsty, send him down here with just a drop of water. He still had his pride and arrogancy in hell even though he was suffering immense pain. And in hell they will know why they're there. They rejected Jesus Christ and for eternity they will know that they chose to be there. There's not going to be anybody in hell accusing God of sending them there. They're going to know that they made that choice. Because God will reveal every opportunity they had to accept him. And most everybody has had at least one opportunity. You know, and it's very important for us to reach out to our 
loved ones, our family, our friends, make sure that you tell them the gospel message. Because the last thing you want them doing in hell is you know, complaining that you never told them. Now, not that you're going to hear them because you're going to be in heaven, but you don't want to give them any excuse. And if you truly love them, why would you not tell them? Well, I know in humanity's terms, we go, well, they might not like me if I do that. They might not be my friend. They've been my friend for, for 20 years. And you're going to let them go to hell because you're afraid to tell them about Jesus? And now, granted, I understand that, you know, lots of people, when they get saved, lose a lot of friends. A lot of those lose friends because we won't do the same thing we used to do with them. We won't go to the parties. We won't go to the activities. We won't, we won't, we won't do all the stuff that they want to do, and we slowly lose them anyway. Get it over with. Tell them about Jesus. If they want to reject it, great. Because you're going to lose them. If you're going to live for God, you're going to lose them anyway. Tell them about Jesus. Tell your family. Tell your friends. And I'm not telling you every single time. You, uh, I've got lost families. And every time I see them, I don't tell them you're going to hell. You need Jesus. You're going to hell. But you know, they have been, I have shared the gospel with them at least one time. They know. They know the truth. And it's important for us to share the truth with those around us. And those that we know. Because this life is short. I don't care if we go back to the patriarchs who lived a thousand years. Their life was still short compared to eternity. You know, let's say somehow we, the science catches up and we get to live a thousand years. What is a thousand years to compare to eternity? God said it's a blink of the eye. You know, Peter tells us that a day to God is like a thousand years and a thousand years is to a day because he is so, he's dealing with eternity. You know, a thousand years is to a blink of an eye to him. It just, just went by. Yeah. And most of us are old enough to kind of realize, you know, that's pretty much life, life is anyway. You know, we're already halfway through this year, and it seems like it just started. You know, uh, and each year for me seems to be going faster, and I'm not even old yet. <laughs> you know, and it's going faster and faster. I can imagine from God's point of view, he goes, I just created you yesterday. What's, what's, what's going on? You're, it's almost time to destroy you. And it was just created. From, from his point in humanity in, in view, it is just a short time, a blink. And he says, I've given you truth on your lifetime. And a very short period of this lifetime will determine our eternal destination. And that's important for us. Where will we spend eternity? Where will our friends and neighbors and our family spend eternity? It is important. Jesus died so that we could have eternal life. Because he knows that we could not pay the debt. The debt to get into heaven is perfection. And he knows that none of us are perfect. At least nobody that I know is perfect. And God says no, nobody's perfect. Now my wife comes pretty close, but none of us are perfect. So, but you know, none of us are going to deserve heaven. Jesus paid the price so that we could be entered into heaven. On the cross, he became sin. 
The only question the Father is going to ask when people stand before the white throne is, what did you do with Jesus? They are going to be dressed in their righteousness. Isaiah says their righteousness is filthy rags. And if you witness to people, you'll hear, well, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven. I'm going to challenge you. If you hear anybody that when you're talking to them about going to heaven and, and how to get to heaven, and they say, well, I hope I'm good enough, your answer is you're not. And when they start getting mad at you and say, neither am I. There is nobody good enough to go to heaven. For all have sinned and come short of the way, glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We have to accept the gift of his salvation. And then we are clothed in his righteousness. And then when we stand before God, we stand before him in the righteousness of Christ. And he goes, welcome, my child, come on in. And I can just picture the rest of them at the white throne judgment, clothed in their righteousness, thinking they're going to earn heaven by their good things they do. And God's going to say, uh, sorry, you're not dressed good enough to come into heaven. Because they're going to look down thinking, God, look how good I look as they look down at themselves and see filthy rags. Which is all the good, not the bad they've done. Stop thinking that people are going to hell because they're bad. They're going to hell because they are not perfect. They do not have the righteousness of God on them. And they will be rejected and sent to hell for eternity because they were not perfect. Not for the bad that they did because they're, they're going to be dressed in their righteousness. And nobody is going to be approved of God in their own righteousness. Because all the things that we do that is good is always tainted. Tainted with pride, tainted with desires, tainted with getting something back. Now, Jesus said, how many of you invite somebody to your house for a dinner knowing that they're going to invite you to their house for dinner? He goes, what reward is there? And most of us do. When we do something nice, it's because we expect to get something nice. Our friends, you know, we like our friends, but, you know, we know that they kind of like us, hopefully. How many of us have friends that don't like us? We really wouldn't call them a friend, would we? Now, they're a friend because they like us, and we like them, so we have a mutual agreement to like each other. And God says, that's not what I want you to do. I want you to love one another as the Father loves you. God loves us so much that while we were his enemies, Jesus died for us. And his call to us is to love people. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to like everybody. But we are to love them enough to share the gospel with them and to help as much as possible. Because that's what God does for us. So our challenge for us is if anybody's listening online or in this, in this room that doesn't know Jesus, today is the day to say, God, I'm a sinner. I can't pay for my own sins. I need your sacrifice. Thank you. And ask him to come into my heart and then talk to somebody that knows Jesus and let them know what you've done. For online, they can contact us at the church. <laughs> and there's a little tag at the end that tells them how to do that. For those of us that are Christians, we need to be praying for people to get saved. We've challenged this church. We have the whole list of the, the people that we're, we're praying for. But I've actually challenged us to go even beyond that list and pick one or two people that we really care about seeing saved and start praying for them. Because that list is one thing. I mean, I pray that list, I pray that list quite, quite often. 
But you know, I don't know half the names on that list. Well, I know the names. I don't know who they, who they are because it's only a first name. I don't know who most of them are. But you know, I do have about three people that I am really praying for to see God do something in their life. That I want to see them get saved. And you know, those three have a more passionate prayer than the whole list. So pray for the list. But think about one or two people that you want to see. Miss, if, if all you can do is one, that's fine. One person that you want to be seeing pray and pray for them several times a day throughout the week and see what God will do. See what kind of revival he'll do. I want to fill heaven. Matter of fact, I'm looking forward to the last Gentile getting saved so we can all be raptured. God says there's a time when the last person is going to say, accept him and we get to say adios to this world and be taken we don't want to if, they, if you don't know Jesus don't put it off because you don't none of us are guaranteed another day every person who dies and somebody dies every five seconds in this world every person who dies had plans they had plans for tonight they had plans for doctor's appointments. They have plans to go to work. They have plans for family events. Every single person who dies has plans that they were planning to do. And God says, your time's up. And once God says, your time's up, it's up. Doesn't care how, how good science is, how good the doctors are, your time is up. When God says it's up. Don't put off the decision for Christ. Don't put off sharing the gospel with a friend because they're not guaranteed any time and you're not guaranteed any time to be able to go talk to them. Get some courage and talk to people about Jesus. Is he important to you? How long can you go without talking about God? I think this is important. Out of the abundance of our heart we speak. And I know this, some of you know people, you know God's important about them because every time they talk, they're talking about God. Not preaching at you, but talking about God. But you also know people who are supposed to be Christians that you would never know that they're a Christian. They never talk about God. They never talk about church. They don't talk about anything about God. You kind of know they go to church maybe on Sunday morning, but they don't talk about God at all the rest of the week. And I'm not saying you always have to be talking about God. Don't get me wrong. You can talk about sports and hobbies and everything, and I do. But anybody who's around me often and long enough will find out. I'll talk about God at some point during, during any conversation because that's how important he is to me. And that's not just because I'm a pastor. It's been, been the way it's been for, for my life. He is important to me. I lift him up. I want to talk about him. So we're going to close here. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your care. Lord, help us to share you with others. Help us to get excited about you. Give us a hunger for you and your word. Give us a hunger for the desire to seek after you and follow you. Help us to share. Lord, if there's anybody in this room or listening online that doesn't know you, that they will choose today to come to you and say, God, I am a sinner. I need you to forgive me. Come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.